0: People don't realize daily, like, how much the government affects their lives. Every time you're pulled over by a police officer, every sign, like, all these stupid things, these are the state imposing upon your life.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Lab Rats. To Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And we've got another great one coming for you here today in this, the 227th episode of this program. And if you're playing the home game, that means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss in the show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 227. Today's show is sponsored by another great libertarian podcast, We Are Libertarians. If you're a fan of this program, I guarantee you're going to love what Chris Spangle and all the other guys and gals over at We Are Libertarians are doing. Check them out at wearelibertarians.com. And before we get into today's interview, I want to give you guys a heads up about a special offer that you'll hear at the end of the program about how you can hear a little bonus audio from today's interview. After the program, I'll let you know exactly how you can get access to about a 10-minute or so conversation that we had after the interview with today's guest. And it was a pretty interesting one, and it takes very, very little effort on your part to get access to that audio. So be sure to tune in to the end of the show to find out just how to get it. My guest today has been around the liberty movement for literally her entire life. She's been directly involved in libertarian politics, having worked for the campaigns of former libertarian presidential candidate Michael Badnarik in 2004, first person I ever voted for as a libertarian, as well as the presidential primary campaign of Ron Paul in 2008. She was also the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire from 2006 to 2008. Her writing can currently be found at the Libertarian Republic. She's actually making her second appearance on the program. She is, of course, Miss Ovens O'Brien. Ovens, are you ready to roar?
0: (laughs) Roar. That was my best roar for you.
1: (laughs) It was a roar. It was officially a roar.
0: It was like Simba from The Lion King. (laughs) Roar.
1: Now, Ovens, you actually—I don't know how you bucked the system here. Somehow, you already got on the show before getting the official Mark Claire interview treatment. But we did have you on a few, uh, maybe the other month, to talk about the libertarian candidates and one of our Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor episodes. So I'll, of course, link to that in the show notes for today's show. So go back and check that out to uh, learn a little bit more about Ovens. But uh, we're going to learn even more about you today. So we already discussed how you kind of grew up as a libertarian and uh, were raised in a libertarian family. So we'll just kind of start right there. What's that? that like? Because not that many people actually grow up in a libertarian household. Most people have to kind of find it on their own or, you know, I've kind of worked on my dad, turning him a little bit more libertarian. So what is it like to kind of come at at it from the other way to be raised in an already libertarian environment where these ideas are actually just normal in your household?
0: Well, I guess I'm not entirely uh, sure what it would be like to be raised the other way. So my basis for comparison is only the stories that everyone else tells about like, you know, rebelling as their parents or having to convince their parents to agree with them. But for me, I I guess libertarian philosophy has always just been kind of second nature to me because it was you know, how my parents kind of viewed the world and how they brought it to me. And so a lot of times I think of things my parents, you know, would, would kind of, postulate the world to me in particular ways. And I was like, yeah, of course, that's how the world is, you know, like government is force. And there's these concepts that a lot of people pick up later in life that I'm like, no, of course, that's how that is. You know, Government is an action of force. And, you know, law is basically putting a gun to someone's head. And these are just things that aren't you know, crazy rhetoric that, you know, I picked up from reading Rothbard. They're literally just the, you know, the things that I I kind of took for granted as a kid. I think that I mean my parents were they were homeschoolers, they were into peaceful parenting, you know, non-aggression towards your kids. You know, and all of that made me very aware of, you know, my body belonging to me and the products of my labor belonging to me. And who I am is very I don't know, I've never understood the concept that government has any kind of right over me in that capacity. So as I've grown up into a world where, you know, there clearly is, you know, there's government and there's and there's the way that some people look at the world in terms of what government should intervene in and what it should it ha- should have a say over, whether it's what you put in your body or what you take out of your body or, you know, how much money of yours it takes. Um, these are all things that I kind of had to learn growing up into the world, not recognizing them as facts from birth. Sure.
1: And most people seem to think that the realm of government is literally everything. You know, there's no problem, no issue out there that we can't. Surely we can't. We can find some way to write a law to fix this. Surely we can gather a group of politicians in a room and and have them work it out for us. But when did you actually realize that that's actually not, you know, that method that people use of thinking and how it conflicts with the way you were raised. When did you realize that the way you were raised was kind of different from the way probably most of the kids you interacted with were raised? Now, now maybe that's not the case. Maybe your parents had you with, you know, similar types of families that maybe held some similar beliefs. So maybe even in that circle, you had a little bit more exposure to different ideas. But I imagine at some point you realized that most of the world certainly was not raised the way you were.
0: Yeah, I th- I mean, I was raised, I feel sometimes like my parents were really uh, doing a bit of a social experiment with us, because well, my parents were just for record, my, both my parents were born like right after World War Two. So like, I have like Vietnam era parents, even though I was born in the late 80s. And so just culture 80s. Oh, my God. Right. I know, right I know. I was born in 87. <laughs> so but culturally, my parents were of the kind of the new age era. So as a result, I mean, my parents worked on the 72 Hospers campaign. They were both in kind of the hippie movement of new age religions. And so, uh, so I was raised pagan. And then on top of that, my parents were very involved in objectivism and libertarianism. And, you know, they knew Murray Rothbard. And so there was this kind of these two things, libertarianism, uh, and then homeschooling, and then paganism, it's like the, uh, and the Age of
1: Aquarius it, meets Ayn Rand. It's, it's like seriously <laughs> like
0: it, I mean, I honestly sometimes I think that my parents were just like we were guinea pigs, and they were like, "All right, we're gonna raise them in homeschooling, we're gonna raise them pagan, we're gonna give them weird names like Ragnar and Ovens, and um, yeah, my brother was named out of Atlas Shrugged, and then we're just That's gonna kind we're, of badass. It, That's it is, badass and you know, he owns it. My brother Ragnar is he's very Ragnar, like not necessarily the character in the book, but he is. I mean, he's very much himself. Uh, but I I don't know he owns the name like you meet Ragnar and you're like yeah you're a Ragnar you could be nothing
1: I've never seen a picture of your brother but to (laughs) me he looks like a giant muscular guy with long hair and like a hammer I don't know (laughs) that's how I picture
0: a Ragnar looking you know it's (laughs) funny he does have long hair but he actually has dark hair Um, most people kind of picture like your typical blonde viking but yeah my brother has dark hair but yeah, so I mean, ultimately, the point is, is that my parents kind of raised us, I sometimes feel like they did it in this sort of experimental, like, "Ooh, let's see how weird we can make them. And then <laughs> I knew fellow pagans, I knew fellow libertarians. I knew kids in my neighborhood who weren't, they were Christian or Jew or, you know, Democrats or anything else. So I grew up with people all around me that I knew had different ideas about the world. And I just kind of I believe that libertarianism can allow for a lot of things. Like you can be somebody who believes in a particular lifestyle or way of life as long as you don't want to force it on anyone else. And so I was always like, of course, I'm a libertarian. You can choose to live however you want in your house, on your property. And I can live however I want in my house and my property. And there's no problem there. And it was interesting when I kind of discovered I don't know entirely when I kind of it kind of hit me, but there was kind of this moment in which I realized that other people didn't think that you could do whatever you wanted on your own property or in your own life. And and I was like, wait, what? But, but I'm not hurting anyone else. But it has been interesting to kind of, uh, like, I think when I was 14 was the first time that someone gave me the idea. They said, you know, healthcare is a right. And I was like, what? And I actually, like, to, to kind of experience that, you know, like, You know, a lot of libertarians experience this idea of not taking the state uh, state for granted and thinking, oh, no, like liberty is the greatest. And for me to kind of see how people... I'm trying to think of the way to phrase it. I hadn't actually articulated this idea in my head before saying it out loud. Well, now's the time. You're on the spot. But the point was is it was the first time that that idea had ever been presented to me, the idea that healthcare is a right. I actually had to explore it. Like because I'm I try to be intellectually integrative. so I was like, "Wait, let me like study that idea. And let me look up theories on this idea. And I like, and I tried to see if there was a way to fit it into libertarian philosophy, but just as a thought exercise, not because I, you know, desired to one way or another, but because I just, I was like, I'm presented with a new idea and I must try to apply the non-aggression principle and everything and see if this can work. And I ultimately concluded it didn't, but I appreciate that my parents raised me in such a way that when people presented me with an idea, I was like, Okay, I need to take first principles, I need to take this idea and compare. And I think that a lot of people would do beautifully if, if they would actually try that. Like, if they would just discover what it is they believe and then not react to things like, no, I don't like that because it doesn't fit in my structure, but actually look and compare it to the whatever structure or moral structure they have, and then really kind of isolate it, compare, and then decide if it can or cannot fit in their worldview. It's kind of an amazing thing that you even had that thought process at that
1: age, because honestly, I don't know, if someone told me healthcare was a right at the age of 12 or 13 or what have you, I'd probably think, yeah, of course it is. Health Without thinking deeply, because I didn't have really deeply held political ideas at that point, I didn't have a philosophy behind anything. Just hearing that phrase, healthcare is a right, you kind of think, well, yeah, people should get healthcare. That's correct. That's the right thing. Of course it is. Until it's only when you actually take a little bit of uh, time to think about what the word right means. Right. And it's, it's actually amazing that you as a 14 year old actually went through that process. I mean, I'm sure you probably attribute that to your upbringing and just the fact that you had an inquisitive mind and that when you heard something that seemed strange to you, you didn't just go, no, that's stupid. You actually l- looked into it and tried to maybe challenge some some assumptions that you already held.
0: Well, I think that's a a big thing I see kind of in libertarians that drives me nuts is that a lot of libertarians come into libertarian philosophy, and there's there's a lot of contrarianism within libertarianism, oh, and that's come on. I, <laughs> and I've
1: and never seen this this phenomenon of which you well, speak.
0: And what's funny is, be, is I noticed it even in my own parents. You know, my parents were rebelling against a particular lifestyle and, and assumptions about the world in the time period that they were raised in. And every once in a while, I saw something in my parents' philosophy that wasn't like, "Hey, take first principle and work from there." It was like more contrarian. And my parents were they. Each had their own kind of philosophical bents within libertarianism like my mother was always more of the anarchist she always refers to herself as an anarcho-syndicalist and my dad was always more of the objectivist and so God, you got the full spectrum. Guy, oh, huh? seriously! <laughs> like, but that's the thing is, but I could see my parents and I was like rebelling against each other or rebelling against what they were raised with, and so there's a lot of contrarianism. And I mean, they both figured themselves out, and you know, it's all well and good. I'm not going to you know debate their philosophy all day long. But at the end of the day, I see a lot of contrarianism in other libertarians, where they jump to like oppose something just because oh, like liberals asserted that, and I don't like liberals, and so I don't like that idea. And it's like, what? Could you just take a step back? Take the idea, isolate it, and think about it. And again, apply first principles and see what's up. But I see a lot of libertarians sometimes kind of bristle at a concept if they think the concept is coming from the Democrats or the liberals or or the conservatives and not actually assess it by its own merit. And that that drives me nuts. It's
1: something I call the libertarian or the anarchist synapse. It's a a knee-jerk response to anything that some people feel is objectionable to their beliefs, even if the actual specific, statement or what have you might not be like you can't post a martin luther king quote in in libertarian circles without someone having to be like ah you know that guy was a communist right it's like (laughs) all right what i'm not talking about the guy's entire world view i'm trying to show you this one quote and maybe we can have a discussion about that quote and why i agree with it or why you disagree with it instead there's the the synapse the ah no he's a progressive he's terrible you can't listen to anything he says
0: I noticed that a lot because um, when Muhammad Ali died, like,
1: yeah, a great example.
0: Someone posted something about like, you know, he was an incredible spokesperson against the draft, right? That was amazing. And then he also happened to have communist sympathies and he was also, you know, he, he was very involved with Black Panthers and things like that. And you know, these a complicated man. So was Martin Luther King. So was Thomas Jefferson. So was Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand actually believed that smoking was good. Like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you know, I just I look at this and I'm like, of course, we are flawed human beings. These were flawed human beings. Some people pick up stupid ideas, and they can't let go of them, or they don't. Like, it's just, to me, it's like, we need to not worship people, but we should also, like, A lot of times people look through history and they start tearing down heroes because of something bad they did or something they supported in the time or whatever. And it's like, you know, you got to isolate. You got to just be able to say, okay, here was some good, here was some bad. And hey, I love that Jefferson quote. Yes, he owned slaves and that really, really sucks. But guess what? Like, here's an amazing quote that showed that he was witness to some truth. And let's take that and enjoy that. And same with Muhammad Ali. I mean, him talking about how he doesn't owe the government his labor is amazing. Amazing. Like rock that quote. Every libertarian should pick that up and carry it off. Like that's, yeah, I don't know. That's my perspective on that.
1: No, I mean I think you're speaking to an issue that we see all over libertarian dialogue. I'm sure it's not confined to libertarians. There's no doubt that progressives and conservatives and people of all political ilk's uh, do the same sort of thing. You get trapped in your little bubble, but I think the difference is there that libertarians think everyone else does it and thinks that they don't. Yeah, <laughs> Many exactly. of them do. When I see it all the time, I mean, I sometimes I just feel like I'm butting my head against walls when I'm just trying to sort of explain uh, some kind of nuanced topic, and I'm just getting bombarded with like catchphrases, and I'm just thinking like wait this is like the entire thing we're trying to reject we're trying to reject this black and white left versus right us versus them thinking and yet so many people seem to fall back into that trap without realizing it
0: well it's it's a comfortable like that's the thing is when you mentally create ruts in your mind and even if you were raising those ruts and then you have to like you get out of them like they're still really easy to slide back into very
1: much so so um so why don't we talk a little bit about Like how you made the transformation from libertarianism as as just sort of the way you were raised in a thought process to actual political activism. You did become involved with the New Hampshire Libertarian Party as well as a couple of presidential campaigns like I mentioned Michael Badnarik, the first libertarian I ever voted for in my life, and at that point it was I only voted for him because I knew I hated Bush. I knew I, I actually I hate to admit this, when I was twenty years old in two thousand, my very first vote I voted for George W. Bush. I didn't know any better. I sure as heck knew I wasn't going to make that mistake again. Right. At the same time, I was seeing through John Kerry. I was seeing through the him as sort of a he seemed like a false opposition to me. And right. I, I think that well we'll never know because he never got elected. But uh, I think we all know that his administration wouldn't have been incredibly different from the George Bush administration, just like the Obama administration is not that much different. Yeah. But, you know, to me, it was just a rejection. At least it was kind of the first step of thinking, wait, these two things are wrong. I need to at least think about things in a different way. So, right. so how did you get to the point where you wanted to influence people to do that same thing in the political realm?
0: I think actually the first thing that really hit me was uh, So I, I started college in 2002. And if you do the math on that, I was 14. It feels really weird to say that because then I, people think I'm bragging about that. But the fact is, I homeschooling, started college at 14. And uh, when I was in college, I mean, there were mostly, most of my friends were fairly liberal. Uh, There were some, a couple libertarians that I ran into on campus, but a couple of my best friends, and I really didn't like George W. Bush. Um, One of my friends was a really big Nader fan. And we would just get into conversations about the Bush administration, their policies. And, you know, it was after 9-11. And I remember that The the U.S. government invaded Afghanistan. And then I remember that that
1: we are going to get some angry (laughs) right. (laughs) Right. So the
0: U.S. government uh, decided or military decided to invade Afghanistan. And then I remember the case being made for Iraq. And that was the first time, you know, I'd I'd already, you know, gone around with my mom holding signs and being like, "Vote for Harry Brown. But it was really that that made me own it in that that during that time, watching the Bush administration basically build their case for invading Iraq, that I was like, what the hell is going on? And I remember... Getting so angry, and what I was excited about was that all of my liberal friends were angry too, and we had this bond. And I wasn't just like the weird kid who said I want guns and low taxes and weed. Like it was, you know, we had this bond of not approving of the war, and so we started doing like anti-war protest stuff. So I was doing that with some friends in 2003, and then 2004, continuing to just do like protest activities, etc. And I got to know Michael Badneric on the campus. Campaign trail in 2004. So, in um, it was at the end of August of 2004, I went to protest the Republican National Convention in New York City with uh, an active fellow libertarian activist friend of mine and my brother. And we actually went. And uh, like marched against the RNC, and we uh, also met up with a bunch of libertarians and, and Michael Badnarik in uh, Central Park. And so I had this really awkward picture of me. I never share it because I look horrible in it. But it's this really awkward picture of me with Michael Badnarik and my friend Jim, and we were uh, and we were just like smiling and holding a Badnarik sign. And so that was the first time. Like I went door to door telling people to vote for Michael Badnarik. I actually really just went door to door telling people not to vote for Bush. I was just like, please, just if you're going to vote for Bush, stay home. (laughs) Like, I literally, I was like, I don't care if you're going to vote for Kerry. Like, there's this guy, Ben and he's great. Like, so if you don't see a difference between the two of them, like, go for Ben But at the end of the day, please don't vote for Bush because I really don't know. Like, we can't endorse what he's done over the last four years. And so I did that. I actually remember going out on election day and it was sleeting in New Hampshire. And I went door to door asking people not to vote for Bush and like giving them material on Ben and Eric when they would take them. So that was,
1: uh, that was probably me. a very good strategy because when you lead with something like that, that, you know, that you're going to find a lot of common ground on where with a lot of people that you might not have other common ground on in a lot of other areas when you really dig deep into the philosophy. But if you start with, hey, I hate George Bush. You do, too. Then you already have something in common. You've already opened that door. And I'm sure it really did pave the way to a lot of productive conversations.
0: Well, yeah. And I mean, it was funny because I, I mean, you know, you just you pull out all stops when you're going George door trying to convince people something. I used to sell Girl Scout cookies. Same thing. I remember because I was 17. I was 17 in 2004. And oh, I couldn't, like a junior I, in college. I, I, I couldn't <laughs> vote. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I couldn't vote. I had just, um, it was 2004. So I was about to get my associate's degree and I, but I couldn't vote. And I went door to door and I was like, look, I can't vote. But you can, and I would give anything to be able to vote right now. Can you vote? Because like, and people would be like, it's sleeting. I don't really want to go outside. I'd be like, look, we will drive you to the polls. Like, I will drive you over to Parker Barney School on Hillside Ave. Like, I'll do it. Like, just it was funny because people would. People were like, oh my god, like you're so committed, and so they went. And I don't know who they voted for, but I told them not to vote for Bush. <laughs>
1: so, I mean, even just convincing people to care a little bit more, to be a little more active, even if they're not going in the direction you want. I mean, there's a victory in that as well, because I think a lot of times that is the first step is getting people to even pay attention to politics in the first place. So many people are see it as a separate thing from them. They think, well, I don't like politics and I'm not really into it. But, you know, to me, politics isn't about something I'm into or not. It exists. I mean, it's going to affect my life and the lives of many, many other people. So I cannot avoid it. I can pretend it's not there, but it's going to affect my life. So if I want to just act like the political realm isn't occurring, that's my right to do that. But at some point, it's going to affect my life, and I'm going to realize, oh, oh, this is why. This is why people are involved in politics, because it actually can cause problems for you. It's going to cause problems for all of us, people that don't even realize it, by all the various laws that so many people advocate for, uh, many of whom are good-natured in their intentions but just don't see the, the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I definitely see that, too, is people who aren't engaged in politics are sometimes the easiest uh, to kind of convert into libertarianism because you can talk to them about, like, why they aren't interested in politics. And usually they say something like, well, uh, my vote doesn't matter or the system's already corrupt. And I'm like, congratulations, you're a libertarian because you understand that the system is corrupt and it doesn't speak for you and thus it does things that hurt you. And of course you're not interested in participating in it, but here's why sh- you should be involved in at least protesting what it's doing. And so I've actually found a lot of ins. I actually, I like guys that hit on me at bars sometimes. And like, I'll just kind of like, like, Oh yeah, I'm really interested in politics. And I'll just wait for the guy who says like, no, I hate politics. And I'm like, Oh, why do you hate politics? And as soon as, as soon as they pull say, up a, Well, it's so funny because, like, I'll just sit there and, like, be drinking and, like, and someone will say to me, you know, I I don't like politics. I'm not interested in it at all. And I'll be like, why not? And as soon as they say that it's because, you know, the system doesn't work for them or it's just, like, it's corrupt or it's whatever, you know, or their vote doesn't matter because they live in California. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about why that's a thing. And then you just, you talk about the news and suddenly someone has a political opinion, even though they said they didn't like politics. And suddenly you're having a conversation about how, you know, burn the system down and ta-da. Uh, libertarians.
1: <laughs> it's amazing how many uh, supposedly apolitical people I see uh, that just can magically come out with a, a gun control rant after something happens, or you know, some other event occurs in the world. Suddenly, they've got a very strong opinion on it. But then they'll go back to, "But I don't like talking about politics." Like, wait a minute, you just you realize that's what you're doing right now. You're talking
0: about politics. People don't realize that, especially when you start to recognize that, like, what is it? We break an average of three laws a day just by going about our daily lives, sure. and so every time that you kind of point that out to somebody, it's like, yes, your life, your very act of living is political because what you're doing is like the system is so fucked up that you are breaking laws every day. I remember my neighbor when I was living in New Hampshire, I was growing up in New Hampshire and there was this like little old lady lived next door. She was wonderful. Her name was Eileen. And at one point she said like in New Hampshire, you have to get like your dog license or something like your dogs have to be licensed or registered something and you have to renew it periodically. I don't know. I've never had a dog, so I don't know Uh,
1: Exactly. I actually got last year. I have two Huskies, and I got a letter that was not mailed. It was like placed in my yard from the city. <laughs> I guess they were, I don't know how they like gathered that I had two dogs. Like I didn't fill out any forms. I didn't, it just never occurred to me. I got my dogs. I had dogs for years. And suddenly when, when we are living in this particular house, I get this letter that says, uh, we're aware you have two dogs in this residence and you need to fill out this paperwork and send us this money. And I'm just, I mean, I did it cause I don't want my dogs to be taken away or something, but it, it made me think like, what is there some kind of task force going around Los Angeles? like peering into people's houses, Seeing if they have dogs, I mean, it, it really just hit me like how ridiculous some of this stuff is. Did they get it from your vet's records probably? Who knows? But- I mean, that seems like it would be a violation of like dog HIPAA or whatever. I mean, <laughs>
0: <Well, laughs> they shouldn't those-
1: know what my dog's medical conditions are.
0: But that was the thing is that I remember that Eileen like got this message from the city that said she had to renew her dog's license or whatever. And she just didn't feel like paying it. And I remember her like coming over to my house and like, you know, sitting there eating some cheese and drinking some wine with my mother and just being like, what are they going to do? Take me to doggy prison if I don't register my dog. And it's those little acts, those little acts of anarchism that just happen in life that make you realize, holy crap, like the state is doing stupid shit. And so I love when those little things happen. And that, was you know, Eileen wasn't a particularly political woman, but she just had this little thing and she was like, Why the hell do I have to pay for my dog? This is my dog, like, she's did a they, golden retriever. Did they ever come back for her dog? I have
1: no idea. I'm I I I, I Could you call Eileen tonight and we'll give an update when I post the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only half joking,
0: unfortunately, not. She has since passed away, oh, um, sorry. but well, it's all I'm good. Sure. As, I wrote a uh, essay about her actually and how wonderful she is but um well, in that case we'll link to that the shout outs awesome but no I, I believe I think at the end of the day she did it because I think her vet like you know I think, I think it was just one of those things you could just pay at the vet's office or some stupid thing like that but but whatever all I remember is that she just kind of like she was just a feisty lady who was just you know like annoyed by this license and that's the thing is people don't realize daily like how much the government affects their lives every time you're pulled over by a police officer every sign like it, the all these stupid things. These are the state imposing upon your
1: life. Ovens, we're going to take a look at some recent examples from the news of just exactly what you're talking about right there. But first, I need to take a few seconds out to tell our fans about another great libertarian podcast, and that is We Are Libertarians. Now, if you're a fan of this program, which I assume you are, if you're still listening at this point, I'm very confident you're going to enjoy the work that Chris Spengel, Greg Lentz, and all the other co-hosts, are doing over at We Are Libertarians. These guys blend humor and intelligence to explain to you all the crazy stuff that is happening in the world today and how we can fix it and try to filter those events through libertarian views. It's kind of like listening to friends, hanging out and drinking beer while talking politics. Very similar to a lot of the roundtables you hear on this program. They cover current events every single week from a libertarian perspective. It's like meet the press with all all those stuffy politicians. Go ahead and check them out at wearelibertarians.com. You can also find them on every podcasting platform, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find these guys. Again, that's We Are Libertarians. They have the Mark Claire. Seal of approval. I think unfortunately we've got a couple. Good examples of that, or at least in the media recently with a couple of shootings that we've seen. And I mean, the, the one case, I'm not as quite sure of the details, but when you mentioned like, you know, getting pulled over for a broken taillight, that's what happened uh to this one young man. His name is actually pa- passing me on right now, but you know, this guy was pulled over for a broken taillight. And, uh, essentially at some point, I mean, he, he was a concealed carry holder. It's totally legal where he was in Minnesota. It told the officer he had a gun and told him he was going to go reach for his license, but for whatever reason, the officer decided that I don't know all the facts. Obviously, we don't have that part on video. But according to the account, the officer just pulled out his gun and shot him four times right there, the four-year-old in the back of the car. Now, I don't know if you can make the direct connection between the broken tail light itself and uh, the legitimacy of whether a police officer should pull someone over for that. I, I'm actually not really against the concept of, say, you know, a friendly police officer pulling someone over for a broken tail light, telling them it's broken and saying hey, you might want to get that fixed and going along with their day. But we know that's not how police encounters go in this country because the. police are incentivized to turn all of these routine traffic stops into something greater. When they pull you over for a taillight, yeah, they're pulling you over for the taillight, but they're also going there and and seeing if you maybe are someone that might have drugs in the car, trying to look around, see if there's anything else they can bust you for, because they're incentivized to increase all of these stops to the point of arrest. Because you don't get anything, you don't advance your career as a police officer. I've had several former police officers on this program discussing this. You don't advance your career unless you're arresting people. Arresting people is the sign of success when that's just so messed up because to me arresting people is a sign of a failure in the system it's it means that you know bad things are happening in your society and that's either means your citizens are terrible or you have way too many laws and i think uh the answer to that's pretty obvious at least to people like you and me but i don't think um hopefully we can make some headway here but it doesn't seem like a lot of people are, are making that connection
0: Definitely. I think that it's becoming more, you know, it's horrible that things like this are happening, but it's also, I appreciate that it's waking a lot of people up to how messed up things are. By the way, his name was Philando, Philando Castile. Castile, Yes.
1: Yes. I was Googling it too. Yeah. (laughs) You might've remembered it. I don't know. I'll let everybody at home think that you always knew his name. I just, you know, I'm like an elephant. I
0: never forget. But the thing is, is you know, right now, there's a lot of people who are angry about this. And one of the most interesting things I found today online was um, a uh, joincampaignzero.org. And it's actually a campaign website that was put together, I've been told, by Black Lives Matter activists. I and mean, I don't know this much myself. But it's really interesting because it's actually kind of creating this system of um, of trying to reduce, like limit the amount of police interventions, improving community interactions and ensuring accountability. It's like uh, join campaignzero.org and it's actually like a list of the things that need to be done within communities to reduce the chances of police violence. And so there's end broken windows policing, community oversight, limiting use of force, independently investigating and prosecuting, community representation, body cams slash in the police, training and for-profit policing, demilitar and fair police union contracts. And I'm like, I've just been like exploring their website a little bit today, but like I literally like signed up. I was like, how can I help? And they're like, contact your representatives. And not, it's not even lot talking about, you know, federal. It's it's literally saying like contact your local state congressman. So I totally put in my info and was like, I wanna know. Because once upon a time, police officers were somebody you'd go to like for help, but you know, I lost my dog, or like I can't find my mommy. And like now police like it's Police officers are terrifying. Like, and, you know, once upon a time, it was like, it'd be nice if someone could, you know, pull, like, stop you and go, hey, guy, you know, just so you know, your taillight's out. In fact, my taillight is currently out. Uh oh. And a nice, like, a nice person who is like, driving on the highway by I me. I hope there's no
1: LA police officers <laughs> listening right now because they're going to be looking for you
0: seriously. But I I was like, I went off on an on-ramp, and so the person that had been behind me pulled up next to me, and he honked, and I rolled down my window, and he said, hey, just so you know, your taillight's out. And I was like, thanks so much. I'm going to go get that fixed. Like, especially because I know that if I don't, not only is a cop going to, I'm going to have an an interaction with a cop, which could be bad, and I don't really want that, but also that cop is going to give me a fix-it ticket. And in this state, it's going to be 35 bucks or 50 bucks or something like that. And Like that's just it's so stupid because then if I don't send it in within two weeks, they try to find me a thousand dollars like it's ridiculous. Then
1: you got to go to court and all of a sudden you're in the system and and maybe someone like you can pay the 50 bucks and, you know, take a day off work and go to court if you have to. But, you know, for the poorest people in our society who are all too often the actual targets of a lot of this stuff due to profiling i mean it's it's black and white a lot of the times that we know that the fact that the police do profile certain races they do profile certain types of people a more beat down car a more run down car that kind of person is going to have actually difficulty paying that 50 bucks sometimes they're not going to be able to take off work to go to court and then they get sucked into that system and and it really just puts them in the cycle where they can never get out of it because if you can't afford the first fine you sure as hell can't afford a thousand dollar fine and you sure as hell can't afford to take days off work and this is how so many people just get this is how so much anger gets built up is how a Ferguson happens. This is how, you know, we see all these mass protests. They're not just from these shootings. They're in the larger context of what people go through in their day to day lives in so many communities across America. And again, it comes back to what policing has become. It's become revenue generation for cities. That's essentially what policing is. It's a way to arrest people for profit.
0: Exactly. Did you see, by the way, I don't know if um like I right before this. And of course, when this actually airs, this will no longer be timely information. But um, have you seen the curtain? Have you seen? uh, Apparently, there's protests going on in Dallas, like right now. Like, so I the last thing I saw
1: officers were shot on on the last time I looked, I'm sure by this airs, we'll know a lot more of the actual story.
0: But I mean, I look at that and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I mean, I immediately, you know, like, I don't want anyone hurt. Like, I don't want anyone hurt. And I understand, like, I've probably written and deleted, like, you know, 20 angry, you know, messages or uh, angry Facebook posts today going like, ah, burn the system down. Right. And then I just go, no, 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 no. Okay. Like, let's just breathe. But the fact is, like, I I understand why people are angry and I understand, I mean, I want to see everyone showing up and protesting. I just don't want anyone hurt in the process. But it reminded me of, uh, do you remember, and I think it was like 2014, The uh, in Hong Kong, there was a bunch of civil disobedience and protests going on in, uh, in Hong Kong, and I believe 2014. Did you remember any of that? Do you remember any of that? I
1: do have a vague recollection. 2014 was a pretty crazy year, though.
0: <laughs> well, so what was crazy about that, and this is something I just think of all the time, I literally read this regulate is during that time, they did basically, it was like Occupy Love and Peace Hong Kong. And it was, uh, they had actually published a manual of disobedience. And what they actually did in that process is they wrote out like a list of, of recommendations to everyone who was going to be there at their protests about how they should behave and what they should do. And one of the things that was so incredible is the manual of disobedience included how they needed to not be violent. I don't want to tone police people and say, hey, like, you know, like simmer down now, like, you know, this horrible thing just happened and you're protesting. But, you know, behave yourselves. But at the end of the day, rereading this list of things they were telling their protesters to do in that protest, like it just it, it seriously like warms my heart to read because it's so beautifully written. And I actually pulled it up if you'd like to hear a paragraph of it. Go for it. Okay, so. The whole thing i 'm reading it out of context there's actually like there talks about the philosophy of civil disobedience and then it 's point number two says. Using violence against violence will only intensify bias and fear, provide the government the excuses for suppression, and further empower the suppressors. Civil disobedience is to win over hatred with love. The participants should face sufferings with dignified attitudes so as to summon the conscience of the suppressors and to minimize the hatred underlying the acts of suppression. More importantly, nonviolence will win over the empathy of bystanders. And expose the complete lack of legitimacy of the institutional violence applied to us by the suppressor. The self sacrifice can arouse the awakening of the public. Number three is the ultimate aim of the campaign is to establish a society embracing equality, tolerance, love, and care. We fight against the unjust system, not individuals. We are not here to destroy or humiliate the law enforcers, rather, we are here to win over their understanding and respect. Not only do we need to avoid physical confrontation, but also to avoid developing hatred in heart. That is beautiful. <laughs> Seriously, like I read it and I just like, there's a whole list about like, about, you know, do not you bring any weapons or anything that can be used as weapons. When facing arrest, form a human chain and lie down to show our non-cooperation, but do not struggle. Like, and it just, it's so like, I just reading it. I'm like, holy crap. Like, it's so, I mean- It's so incredible to read and I read it periodically to just literally just like calm myself down and like just because it's incredible because if you look back at, at like some of the most effective forms of protest, you look at like people being beaten down and you just immediately everyone's heart goes out to the people who are being hurt. And you know, and the moment that someone fights back in those instances, you see people start to justify what the oppressors are doing. And so these moments, like I'm not a pacifist, but sometimes I read this stuff and I, and I think of those moments and I go, "Wow! Like there is something more powerful, and it's that awakening of the empathy of the public that's just so." For, oh it's yeah anyway so sure, i mean
1: there's going to be understandable rage at, when, when we see these incidents plastered on the news and we see someone who was killed especially when we see when at least it appears from the surface that he was of no threat to people but in both of the recent cases that we've seen but if the response to that is and we have no idea what actually has gone on in dallas um but you know but i i do see some people that kind of i don't want to say support it but some people do i mean some people some anarchists out there literally do support this kind of thing it, i think Absolutely. that's a very very small minority but some people do and other people many kind of tend to apologize for it and i think we need we really need to take the exact opposite approach both for practical and moral reasons because if you protest the violent acts with more violent acts aimed at equally arbitrary targets and i'm sorry but just because someone is a police officer doesn't make them responsible for anything bad that a police officer has ever done that's just more collectivist bullshit that we need to be against so exactly um, I think that what you read there from that paragraph was, uh, you know, that's the kind of attitude that American protests need to take. That's the kind of attitude libertarian protesters need to take. We need to win people over with love and with compassion and with truth and justice and all of that great stuff, but not with violence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, as you think about it, you know, libertarians talk about the fact that, you know, the state is violence and the enforcement of law is violence. And so, you know, enacting violence, you know, and again, not a pacifist myself, but at the end of the day, enacting violence to win is just creates more of the same problems and also starts to legitimize the violence being used to push you back down. And at the end of the day, like I, you know. Yes, I'll go down swinging. But at the end of the day, I also want to... You want to go down hugging. That's what you want to do. That's the thing. Yeah, no, I, I want to literally like swing at my oppressors and grab them into a bear hug and pull them down <laughs> to the ground with me. But But that's the thing is it's like, you know, I periodically think about my life and I think about the kind of life that I want to live and the kind of person that I want to be. And what I often think about is... What I would want said about me at my own funeral. And I know that's like really depressing and weird to think about, but I think about it a lot because at the end of the day, I have no control over it. I will be dead and there will be a bunch of people talking about me after I'm dead. And what will they say about me? And I can't control it. I can't tell them what they should say about me. But what I can do is live the kind of life that inspires them to say the things I want them to say. So I periodically think about, you know, do I want people to remember that I was, you know, like always coming up with a you know, witty, bitchy comment back? Or do I want people to say, you know, no matter who was cruel to her, she was always kind. And I go, I want people to say that about me. And so I have to live my life in a way that causes people to say those things about me. And so, you know, whether or not I, you know, go down in history just remembered by my own children someday, or whether or not I go down in history remembered as like a libertarian author or whatever I am or activist or whomever, I want people like when, you know, years in the future when I'm dead and gone, I want people to think back on, me and think of particular qualities, and those qualities I want are peace and love and kindness and, you know, and trying to fight for what I believe is right and doing so in the most open, armed way possible.
1: Well, maybe... I'll just play a clip, this clip from the podcast at your funeral, and then everybody will know exactly, you know, exactly what, what they're supposed to talk about about you.
0: See, there
1: we go. Ovens, I think talking about your <laughs> impending death is a great way to wind down, wind down the program today. We'll certainly uh, be talking to you a lot more in the future. But uh, you know, before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody the little roundabout of how they can find you on social media, how they can find your writing, and you know, let us know what else you got going on. Feel free to plug away on anything you got coming up. Excellent. It's self-promotion time. Yeah. Um, That's the whole point of this. You're like, when are we going to get to my <laughs> Promotion.
0: Man. Oh, I've been self-promoting all along. So you can find me, you can find me on Facebook as Avens O'Brien. My name is A-V-E-N-S and I know your podcast displays will show it properly spelled, but Hey, look, you pronounced it correctly too, which is awesome. I do but I'm also, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. All it's Avens O'Brien is always my username. And actually, so AvensO'Brien.com leads to my writing, but actually the easiest way to find all of my internet presence is very stalker friendly. is just ovens.me, A V E N S.me, And so you can literally find links to everything from YouTube. I have a couple of YouTube videos. I've got my articles from the Libertarian Republic and a couple of other places. And everything from Twitter to Facebook to LinkedIn to, you know, whatever. You can stalk me all day long on there.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, we'll link to all the ways you can stalk ovens over at the show notes for this page as well. Ovens, it's been a pleasure. Good luck with everything and keep on roaring. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Miss Ovens O'Brien. It's really interesting to hear from someone who was raised as a libertarian because most people I know were definitely not raised as a libertarian. Many people were raised in a Democrat household, a Republican household, and kind of had to slowly find our way towards these ideas. So it's really interesting to hear the perspective of someone who has literally been immersed in this movement from the womb. And speaking of the womb... Ovens and I ended up having an impromptu sort of conversation about the subject of abortion, something that she has written on extensively and something she's currently writing a few other articles on, and I found it really interesting, and we just happened to still be recording, so Ovens agreed to let me use that audio for my purposes, and in this case, my purposes are to try to give you guys a little bit of an incentive. Now, as you guys know, as listeners of this program, I'm always asking you to go over to iTunes, go over to Stitcher, and now that we're on Google Play, head over there as well and to leave us a... A five-star rating and a great review. This is the kind of thing that really helps to boost our visibility across those platforms. So I'd like to really encourage people to do that. And usually I just ask you to do it as a favor, but today I'm going to ask you to do it in exchange for access to this bonus audio, this conversation that I had about abortion with Ovens O'Brien. Now, here's what you got to do. I highly recommend iTunes because that is the most used platform. I know that's how a lot of you guys do listen to the show. So if you can go over to iTunes and leave us a review, leave us a five-star rating, and take a screenshot of that and email that to me. You can email it to mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can also post it over in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You type that into your little search bar on Facebook, type Lions of Liberty Forum. We also link to that in the show notes for this program at lionsofliberty.com slash 227 you go over and post that over in the forum or email it to me whatever way you can get it to me to prove that you left us a five-star rating and a review and i will shoot you back a link to that conversation now if you're one of the great fans of ours who has already gone ahead and left us a review on itunes you can do something else and you can go leave us a review on a different platform you can leave us a review on stitcher radio you can leave us a review at google play but at the end of the day, if you do leave us a review somewhere on any platform and send me a screenshot, I will get you my 10 minute or so conversation that I had with Ovens O'Brien. Again, email mark, M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com or post it over in the Lions of Liberty Forum, our private Facebook group that I encourage you all to join and come join in this conversation about the ideas of liberty with us. That conversation, of course, continues this coming Friday with my colleague John Odermatt and his Felony Friday, his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. And then next week, we'll have some more fun for you. On Monday, I'm talking to Robin Kerner. He's been on the show several times, founder of the Blue Republican Movement, and he's going to be on the program to talk about his new book, If You Can Keep It, which seeks to help libertarians better communicate their ideas to the public. Something I think we can all use a little help with. And until next time, folks, live long and live free.